All right, let's uh, get started here. We're looking at our last section in 2 Corinthians. I'm told to remind the men that after uh, this class, we're supposed to go to uh, the auditorium. To we sit. are very forgetful. <laughs> yeah. You have to tell us after. Oh, okay. Well, the only reason I'm telling you now is because I'll forget after. So. <laughs> I didn't remember it now. Write it on the board. Write it on the board, yeah. I should have had a slide up here, the last slide. Go to the auditorium afterward. Where? Well, and you got the young mind, right? So you should be able to remember. Yeah, I gave it up for Wednesday. Oh, oh awesome. Yeah. I forgot you had a birthday and got old, didn't you? Yeah. 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 I don't know how old he is, but I put on Facebook he's not a day over 60, right? Right? All right, we're looking at chapter 12 of uh, 2 Corinthians. We're in this section where Paul is defending his apostle apostolic authority. And he's come to this unpleasant task of what we might, what he calls boasting as a fool, uh, because he finds it necessary to defend his apostolic credentials in light of the false teachers who have come in. And they're challenging Paul's authority. And Paul uh, feels like he must defend his authority for the good of the church. Because these false teachers are leading the church away. They're saying, Paul is not really telling you the truth. He's not really an apostle. Paul doesn't like defending himself. He doesn't want to defend himself. But he feels like he has to here because if he doesn't, then he's afraid the church will follow these false teachers and be led astray. So he talks about his reluctance. He starts in chapter number two here, uh, talking about his personal heritage, how that he is a Jew just like they are. He is the seed of Abraham. He gives his heritage. And then he strikes off by talking about his sufferings. His boasting mainly considers he doesn't, he doesn't give his resume, his degrees, and so forth, as you'd normally see on a resume. He talks about all the sufferings he's endured for the Lord as an apostle for the Lord. And then, in chapter 12, verses 1 through 10, he's going to go on and talk about revelations. He says, I must go on boasting, although there's nothing to be gained. See, he doesn't really like this. There's nothing to be gained from promoting myself, but I feel I have to. I will go on to visions and revelations from the Lord. Um, so I say this is the only time that Paul said he must boast. And apparently we gather from that, as I say here, that his rivals, these false teachers, these super apostles, these, you know, these Satan's apostles, Satan's workers, as he calls them, uh, they apparently are saying they've had visions and revelations. And so maybe the Corinthians uh, thought that made them superior to the Apostle Paul. So Paul feels compelled to sort of match his rivals in this particular key area. Now, he's saying uh, there's nothing to be gained from this. That is, uh, it doesn't help edify you, really, by me saying of these things about myself. 
by promoting myself and talking about these great revelations, it doesn't really edify you, but I have to do it to defend myself against these false teachers so that you'll see what I say is really true. So he, uh, he uh, gives us an example of one of these revelations. Now, apparently Paul had a number of these. We know that he had the vision on the Damascus Road. Uh, he had visions in the book of Acts. God appeared to him and so forth. But here is the one he's going to talk about here in verse 2. He says, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up into the third heaven. Whether it was in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. So this is, you know, this is not like those people who have those out-of-body experiences. Remember those people? We don't hear much about them as much as we used to, used to hear a lot about them. That I was on the operating table and I died and I kind of, and I, saw, I rose out of my body. I looked down and I saw my body and so forth like that. They claim that's what happened to them. Well, Paul says, I don't know what happened to me. I had this revelation, this vision I don't know whether I was in the body or out of the body. God knows. And I know that this man, whether in the body or apart from the body, I don't know. But God knows. I, all I know is somehow I was caught up to paradise and heard inexpressible things, things that no one is permitted to tell. <clears throat> now, some have tried to identify, I mentioned first the chronology here, some have tried to identify this vision here with Paul's stoning and possible death at Lystra in Acts 14. Remember, Acts 14 is Paul's first missionary journey. And when he, he's in Galatia, he's in what we think of as modern-day Turkey today. He's in, he's in the area of Galatia. And it says, there, then some Jews came from Antioch, Iconium, and won the crowd over. So Paul first went to Antioch of Pisidia in Acts chapter 13. Then he went to Iconium. And then he goes to Lystra. And uh, remember there in Lystra, they think that he and Barnabas are gods and they sacrifice, try to sacrifice to them and all that kind of stuff. But then some Jews come and they won the crowd over. One moment they think Paul is a god, the next moment they're stoning him. They stoned Paul and dragged him outside the city thinking he was dead. But after the disciples had gathered around him, he got up and went back in the city the next day. He and Barnabas left for Derby. So some people have thought, you know, Paul may have died there or been caught up to the third heaven. That's this. That's not. That's not right chronologically. So I, I don't know when this happened. Well, I, I kind of know when this happened, but so if we look at Second Corinthians, in other words, Paul is writing Second Corinthians here, and he says this happened to me 14 years ago. So 14 years before Second Corinthians would be about the year 42. The year 42. So this happened about the year 42. Acts 14 is about the year 47. So this is before Acts 14. Acts, the first missionary journey is about 46, 47, 48, and around maybe 49, 48. So whatever this is and 42 is before. This is in Paul's silent period, or sometimes called his silent period. If you remember the chronology of the book of Acts, Paul gets saved in Acts chapter 9. He goes back into Damascus. He goes down to Jerusalem. He preaches there. After three years, it says, he goes to Jerusalem. And then he goes off 
he's sent off to back to Tarsus. He goes back to Tarsus uh, in Acts chapter 9. He goes back, and he stays there from sometimes seven, eight, nine years until Barnabas comes and gets him because of the work that's going on, Acts chapter 11, because of the, the conversions, the church in Antioch. And Barnabas goes to Tarsus to get Paul and bring him back. So this vision that Paul had happens during that particular period. So it's not that particular stoning particular event that we're talking about here. Um, I say here, Paul expression, Paul's expression, a man in Christ, refers to himself. It seems a little strange when he says, I, he didn't say, I was caught up in the third heaven. He says, I know a man in Christ who was caught up into the third heaven. He doesn't identify himself. But we know that this is the Apostle Paul. How do we know that? Well, because first of all, he knows the exact time of this revelation, 14 years ago. Uh, he knows the content, the content of the revelation was beyond words that are permissible to communicate, verse 4. He knows all about this thing. Um, he knows whether this man was in the body or out of the body. Um, Paul, so this is clearly Paul, but why is Paul doing this? He's doing this because he doesn't want to draw attention to himself. He doesn't want to say, I, Paul, was caught up into the third heaven. He just wants to say, I knew a man who was caught up in the third heaven. Now, we know this is the apostle Paul because later on he says, I will boast about a man like that. I will not boast about myself except in my weakness. And then he says uh, in verse 6, but I refrain so that no one will think of me more than is warranted by what I, ha what I do or say, or because of these surpassing great revelations, therefore, in order to keep me from becoming conceited. So these revelations are revelations of the Apostle Paul, and God gave him that thorn to keep him from becoming conceited. Um, so Paul does not want people to think that he is something special here. But he has to say, I've had these revelations, just like these other uh, false teachers have had. They have nothing on me. I say here, the scene of the vision was paradise, the abode of the righteous dead that is here located within the third heaven. Uh, so Paul is uncertain about some things, but he's certain that he was caught up into God's presence, into the third heaven. That's all he can be sure about. What Paul heard, I say, and saw, human words were inadequate to relate, as he says in 4b here. Things that, inexpressible things, things that no one is permitted to tell. Um, so Paul says, I can't really explain these things or express these things, and in fact, I'm not permitted to do this. Um, God, God gives us glimpses of glory um, Sometimes to strengthen us, to uh, promote holiness, you know, we're told a little bit about heaven to encourage us, but you know, we don't. We're not told a lot. Uh, we're not. We're not. God doesn't. God is not concerned about satisfying our curiosity, though we get pretty curious about what it's going to be like and so forth. God tells us enough to encourage us, promote us to holiness, and so forth. He says in verse 5, I will boast about a man like that, but I will not boast about myself except about my weakness, my weaknesses. 
Even if I should choose to boast, I would not be a fool, because I would be speaking the truth. But I refrain, so no one will think more of me than is warranted by what I do or say. So this distinction between Paul and the man of Christ, I say, continues in verse 5 and prompts the question, if Paul is speaking about himself, why does he continue to use the third person? Well, again, he's clearly embarrassed at the need to boast at all. Verse 1, he doesn't want to name himself here. He wants to avoid the, the suggestion that he's some sort of special Christian. The revelation was given to him as a man in Christ, just as a Christian, not as some special kind of person or anything like that. And in verse 5, we have kind of a third reason here. Although Paul recognized the honor involved being the recipient of the, of the vision, he says he wants to dispel any importance that this would add to him, to his status. I'll boast in a man like that, but I'm not going to boast in myself. I'm going to boast only in my weakness. So I say here, Paul was prepared to boast of circumstances, if circumstances demanded it, as we have said, he felt of the Corinthians, the Corinthians had driven him to it. But Paul will not boast about a man in Christ who had received a special revelation. Paul can only boast in a positive way if he looks at himself dispassionately. So when he looks at himself impersonally, dispassionately, this man in Christ, he can boast about that experience, about that man. He doesn't want it to reflect upon him personally, or his character. Uh, he doesn't want to boast about his strength and try to promote himself, make himself look good. Um, so the, the, this suggests that the his his rivals were were boasting to promote themselves. They were boasting about their vision, so people would think good of them and praise them and say nice things about them. Paul was not boasting for that reason. He was boasting because I've got to defend my apostleship because I've been teaching you the gospel, and I don't want you turning away from my teaching this false gospel. So all of all this stuff I'm telling you are simply designed to authenticate my apostleship. I verse probably should have included the latter part of verse first part of verse seven where it breaks there, or because of these surpassing great revelations where he says in the latter part of verse uh, six. But I refrain, so no one will think more of me than is warranted by what I do or say, or because of these surpassing great revelations. Therefore. In order to keep me from becoming conceited, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan, to torment me. So I say to keep Paul from becoming conceited because of these surpassing great revelations, he was given a thorn in the flesh. Two points about this difficult verse are fairly clear. The agent implied by the phrase was given is God. So he says... Therefore, in order to keep me from becoming seated, I was given. Well, who gave him that? Well, this is God. I say this is confirmed by the fact that the thorn was given to achieve a beneficial purpose, the prevention of spiritual conceit, and that Paul requested the Lord for the departure of the messenger. In verse 8, he says, I pleaded with the Lord, because he's the one who gave it to me. So the Lord gave him this thorn. He's the ultimate responsible for this thorn, the ultimate one. And so I pleaded with the Lord to take this thorn away from me. Um, I say the, the thorn was given immediately or shortly after the vision described in verses 2 through 4. 
So it's significant that in verses 7 through 10, Paul now speaks about himself in the first person. Therefore, in order to keep me from becoming seated, now, conceited, now he's not talking about the man in Christ, which is him. He's talking about himself. Because he's willing to talk about himself when uh, his reputation is no longer in danger of being enhanced, you know. Nobody's going to say, that great apostle Paul, he's got that thorn in the flesh, you know. that's <laughs> We don't glory in those kind of weaknesses, do we? So Paul doesn't mind discussing his weaknesses, his physical infirmities, his reputation. His reputation is no longer in danger of being illegitimately enhanced by describing the outcome of this vision. I say attempts to identify Paul's thorn in the flesh are numerous, but it would appear to be some sort of physical, some, some kind of, uh, uh, some, some physical disorder of some kind, since only a thorn in the body would appear to be appropriate meaning for thorn in the flesh. So what I'm saying here is the word flesh, the Greek word flesh, has two possible meanings. It sometimes means the physical body, the flesh, the body, sometimes in Scripture. And sometimes it means what we might call the sin nature. The old NIV, if you notice, that's one of the changes. The old NIV many times translated the word flesh, like in the New American Standard, the King James, as sinful nature. The new NIV has gone just gone back to all of them and put it in this flesh. So flesh can mean one of two things. It can mean... That which is sinful in us, depravity, our sinful natures from the fall, our Adamic sinfulness, you know, it can be our flesh, the flesh lust against the spirit, spirit. That's what it is most of the time in Paul. But sometimes it can be just the physical body, the physical flesh. Well, it can't be the sinful nature because a thorn in my sinful nature would be a good thing, right? I'd like to have a thorn. Are you getting warm? Get more. She's mine. The rest of you are you? You okay? All right, I'll come. Tell me when you get to her. So a thorn in the physical nature has to be because a thorn in the sinful nature would be something we'd like to have. We'd like to have something that would beat down and hurt and harm our sinful tendencies. So this is a thorn in the physical flesh. Um, further support for that is found in the fact that. Um, this affliction was given by God and yet it's described as a messenger of Satan. He says, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Um, remember, sometimes Satan is used by God as an instrument to bring about physical affliction. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5, 5 about the man that he wants excommunicated from the church, hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that this flesh, his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. So handing this man over. And we've all familiar with Job. Remember Job chapter 2. Job in chapter 1 has lost his possessions. He's lost his family. And, uh, you know, Job comes back to God and says, and God says, what do you think about Job? And he says, hey, man. God, skin for skin. You just touch his body, and then he will curse you. You know, if you just touch his body, and and God says, "Okay, Satan, go ahead and touch his body." So Satan is the one who actually produces the physical affliction on Job. He's the instrument that God uses. 
So God uses Satan as an instrument to bring about that physical affliction. So um, Paul says this is the messenger of Satan used by God to torment me for a good purpose of, so that I won't become conceited. Uh, he probably calls it a messenger of Satan because he saw it as a hindrance to his mis- to his ministry. It, it's, it's Satan is hindering my ministry by this thorn in the flesh. This physical infirmity, whatever infirmity, whatever it is, it keeps me from fulfilling my ministry as I would like to. Now, what that is, some people think it's eyesight because Paul talks about his ability in Galatians and so forth. Some say it's uh, he got malaria, uh, possibly, um, after his first missionary journey. It's interesting that in the book of Acts, um, Luke joins the apostle Paul. Um, remember there in Acts chapter 16 on his missionary journey, some people think Paul got some disease there, malaria or something. We, and the truth is we just don't know what his physical infirmity is. But, verse 8, he says, Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. Paul now, 14 years later after this, then sees a good purpose in the thorn to keep him from becoming conceited. But initially he was troubled, so troubled, that he pleaded with the Lord to take it away from him. So he said previously, the Lord gave this, so I wouldn't become conceited, this messenger of Satan. But initially, I asked the Lord to take it away. Verse 9, but he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weakness, so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions. In difficulties, for when I'm weak, then I'm strong. So I say here, Paul didn't get the answer he prayed for, he hoped for. Thorn wasn't taken away; it remained. But so too did his recollection of the divine reply. My grace, Paul, God said, my grace is sufficient for you. Grace denotes here power, my power, my ability. So. The grace, this grace of Christ was adequate for Paul, weak as he was, precisely because, he says, for divine power finds its full scope only in human weakness. Divine power finds its strength in human weakness. The more evident, um, the greater we acknowledge our own weaknesses, the greater the more evident is God's enabling, God's Christ's strength given to us. Um, so weakness and strength existed simultaneously in Paul's life. He was given this so that he wouldn't become conceited. He was given this so that in his weakness, anything that happened, any results would be seen as a result of God's power. Um, you know how, what that's like. It's always possible for people to do great things in their own strength, their own abilities, and so forth. It's, it's always possible. People have, as human beings, we have tremendous abilities sometimes to do things, to think things, to make things happen, to build, you know, in the secular world, to build a business or, uh, you know, accomplish some athletic 
feet or something like that. It's possible in our own strength to do a lot of things. And it's a pop, it's pop, possible to do that in the Lord's work too, you know. But if people look at us and applaud us, you know, that's not the best thing, obviously. And there is actually, God gets more glory if it's done in our weakness. So I say here, therefore, that is why, in light of the spiritual lesson Paul has learned, he would, be, he would gladly boast about things that expose his weakness, insults, hardships, persecution, rather than pray for the removal of the thorn and its attendant weaknesses. It wasn't the weaknesses itself, themselves, that Paul delighted in. It wasn't the weaknesses himself, but the opportunity sufferings endured for Christ's sakes endured, allowed him afforded him for Christ's power to reside and be effective in his life. So when he had to endure these weaknesses, when he had to suffer this thorn in the flesh, then when God was accomplishing things, when people were being saved and sanctified, that is how we see God's power today in the salvation of individuals and the sanctification of those individuals, in their salvation and in their lives, in their holy lives. And that's the real evidence of God's power working. It's not in some miraculous way. It's that change lives, their regeneration, and their ultimate maturity, conformity to Christ. So when we see human strength abounding, when people, and we have, you know, it's, it's good to have talents, it's good to have abilities, but when things seem to be accomplished strictly by human ability, then God's power is sort of overlooked. You know, we, we sort of just think we, we can do it and so forth. So Paul says, that's why God gave me this thorn in the flesh, so I wouldn't become conceited, and so that in my witnesses, people would have to give credit to the power of God when they see things happening in, in life. Well, let's come to the signs of an apostle. Paul's still defending himself. He's mentioned his revelations. He says, I made a fool of myself, but you drove me to it. I ought to have been commended by you. See, there's what should have happened. I shouldn't have to be boasting, talking about my revelations. I have to, because these false teachers are going to lead you astray. I ought to have been commended by you, for I am not in the least inferior to these, quote, super apostles, even though I'm nothing. So now that Paul's boasting as a fool is virtually over, Paul emphasizes that it had been by coercion. If it had only been his reputation at stake, Paul would have never boasted. But in this situation, it was his status as an apostle that was in question, and as a result, the gospel itself. If you question Paul's status as an apostle, then you question his message. You question the gospel. So Paul should never had to have defended himself anyway. The Corinthians should have come to his defense. If any Christian church was qualified to write Paul's, you know, resume or testimony, it was the Corinthian church. But they had remained silent in the face of these false teachers. Paul now lists a couple of reasons why the Corinthians should have rallied to his defense. First, they all knew that he was not in the least inferior in to the super apostles. So, he says, even though I'm nothing, I'm denying personal merit here. 
that might make me worthy of an apostle, but you should know that as an apostle, I'm not, I'm not the least inferior. And now he gives the evidence, verse 12. I persevered in demonstrating among you the marks of a true apostle, including signs, wonders, and miracles. So the second reason the Corinthians ought to be ought to have jumped to Paul's defense is that they observed in Paul's ministry the marks of a true apostle, including signs, wonders, and miracles. Signs, wonders, and miracles do not describe three types of miracles, but miracles in general considered from three aspects. So if you look at the Gospels, all three of these words are used. The word sign, semeon, that's John's favorite word. In the Gospel of John, it'll talk about Jesus did this sign. Somehow translated sign miracle, some translators. Because it's a miracle, but it emphasizes the sign value. And the Gospel of John is built around seven signs or seven miracles that Jesus did. So Paul is saying, I did signs. I did wonders. The word wonder is meant to evoke awe. Sometimes when we see miracle, a miracle healing, that evokes awe. You're, you're amazement. You're in awe. And miracles. Miracles is the word dunamis, power. So miracles have power. So miracles have these three aspects. They're signs. They give us information. They create a tremendous awe. We just amazement at God and His work. And we see the power of God. I say if all Christians are capable of performing such deeds, as the charismatic movement seems to suggest sometimes, they would not have served as signs of an apostle. So these are rather rare, the ability to do miracles, signs, and wonders, to raise people from the dead, like the apostle Paul did, or like the apostle Peter did. Those are the kinds of miracles that authenticate apostleship. How are you inferior to other churches, except that I never, that was never a burden to you? Forgive me this wrong. So here's total irony, you know. How was I? How were you inferior to other churches? Except I was never a burden to you. Oh, forgive me, this wrong. In total irony, Paul now notes that the only respect in which the marks of a true apostle were not evident in the apostolic church of Corinth was that of support. He never was a financial burden to them, an injustice for which he sarcastically pleads forgiveness. Remember, we talked about this before. That. Um, in 1 Corinthians 9 and in 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians 11, Paul argues that as an apostle, he has the right to support, that God's people should support him. But remember, he said in 1 Corinthians, I'm not taking any support from you because I don't want you to think that the gospel costs something. You know? It's the same reason we take an offering here we say, if you're a visitor, we don't expect you to give. Please don't think you have to give anything. We don't want you to think you're, you've got to pay to hear the gospel or something like that. That's what Paul is doing in this sense. Um, and so um, he says, uh, I was never a burden to you except in this that I didn't. And that's, that's sarcasm. That's, you know, why would you, why would you even think that that because I didn't take any money from you that I am somehow uh, not doing the right thing. Well, again, the false teachers were saying, remember, that true teachers are supported by, uh, by their pupils. And Paul says, that's okay, but I was doing it for this purpose. Let's look at Paul's, Paul's proposed third visit. 
His first visit was his founding of the church in Acts chapter 18. The second visit we talked about before was when he made that painful visit over there that's not recorded in the book of Acts, and he comes back to Corinth, and then he writes the severe letter, sends it by Titus. So this visit is now his third visit. He's in Macedonia, remember, up there maybe in Philippi, going to come south. Now I'm ready to visit you for the third time, and I will not be a burden to you because what I want is not your possessions but you. After all, children should not have to save up for their parents, but parents for their children. So I will very gladly spend for you everything I have and expend myself as well. If I love you more, will you love me less? I say regardless of how upset the Corinthians may have been with Paul for his failure to accept financial support, he announces that his third visit to Corinth is imminent and that his policy regarding support will not be altered. They're going to have to continue to uh, bear this, quote, injury he's inflicting upon them, verse 13, because uh, his affections are upon the Corinthians, not on their possessions. I don't want you to think that I'm out for what you can give me. I'm concerned about, I, I want your love, your mutual love. I want your maturity. I'm concerned about your devotion to Christ, that kind of thing. So I say, Paul seeks to defend his refusal to accept support by appealing to the obvious truth that it's not the children's obligation to save up and provide for their parents, but only parents for the children. I mean, this is a principle. It's not universally applicable. It's a general principle that, you know, we don't expect our 12-year-old child to support us when they're growing up, and Paul's their spiritual father. I say general only in the sense that sometimes, you know, people of our family, if they need help, if our, if our, if our um, parents, when they're older, if they need help, Remember, Paul says, like in 1 Timothy 5, 8, uh, if anyone does not provide for his relatives, especially for his immediate family, he's denied the faith he's worse than an unbeliever. So there is an obligation to take care of our family members. But as a general principle, Paul, what Paul says is right here. Paul planned to use all his resources to achieve what was best for the Corinthians. I will gladly spend for you everything I have and expend myself as well. Nothing would be spared in his efforts to win their affection for Christ. All he asked for them was a fair exchange. Am I to be loved the less because I love you more? So Paul is saying, if my love as a father exceeds your love for me as children, uh, why would you love me less? <laughs> you know, why would you take my love for you which is so great that I'm willing to be expended. Will you love me less because of that? This is silly. Verse 16. Be that as it may, I have not been a burden to you. Here we get the irony again, remember. Yes, crafty fellow that I am. I caught you by trickery. Did I exploit you through any of the men I sent to you? And this word exploit means, exploit means financial expo exploiting. Did I exploit you by, through any of the men I sent to you? Timothy had probably been sent earlier than Titus was sent. I urged Titus to go to you, and I sent our brother with him. Titus did not exploit you, did he? 
remember, we just remember that Titus has joined Paul in Macedonia. We saw in chapter 7 that the, the Corinthians really liked Titus. They were, they were happy with his visit. They liked him. They appreciated him. So bringing up Titus. Did we not walk in the same footsteps by the did, did we not walk in the same footsteps by the same spirit? You like Titus, didn't we do the same thing as Titus did? Why were the Corinthians not willing to engage in this fair exchange, exchange of, of affection? Apparently, Paul had not personally been a financial burden to the church. Excuse me, although Paul had not been a personally been a financial burden, it would appear, at least from the way he talks here, you crafty fellow that I am. I caught you by trickery. Did I exploit you? It would appear that a rumor had circulated at Corinth that because Paul was unscrupulous by nature, crafty fellow, he was exploiting the church's generosity and was secretly trying to gain through his agents what he had declined to accept personally. What Paul probably has in mind here is this collection. Are we talking about the collection? So Paul wants the Corinthians to take up this collection. And he's been trying to get it. He mentioned it in 1 Corinthians chapter 16. Uh, and now he's mentioned it again in chapters 8 and 9. And so apparently some could be saying, you know, this collection, that's just a way for Paul to get his money. You know you know how it is when they say on TV, you don't have to send any money in at all. We're not going to charge you anything. Just call us and we'll send this to you free. You know, ain't no such thing as free, right? You're suspicious right from there. So you can see where people might say, hey, this Apostle Paul, man, he he says he doesn't want any money, but, you know, this offering, what's he taking off the top? What's his commission for that offering? They could be saying that, possibly. But they should have known that that was false because Paul had said in 1 Corinthians 16, Take this collection before I come. I don't want any collection taken when I come. We know that Paul had sent representatives to them. I urged Titus to go to you, and so forth. So there was no conspiracy to exploit them. Everything was on the up and up. They had been impressed with Titus. They respected him. And if, if they respected Titus, they should respect the Apostle Paul. Misgivings about his visit. Have you been thinking all along that we have been defending ourselves to you? We have been speaking in the sight of God as those in Christ, and everything we do, dear friends, is for your strengthening. Paul turns to dispel a notion which might readily have occurred to any Corinthians who hears or reads this letter that he had all along been seeking to defend his conduct and reputation before a panel of Corinthian judges. It was to God or Christ, not to the Corinthians, that Paul was ultimately accountable. Remember, Paul talks about this a lot in other places, like 1 Corinthians 4. He tells them, I care very little if I'm judged by you or by any human court. Indeed, I don't even judge myself. My conscience is clear, but that does not make me innocent. It's the Lord who judges me. Therefore, judge nothing before the appointed time until the Lord comes. He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and expose the motives of heart. At that time, we'll receive each will receive their praise from God. So, as I say here, Paul's rivals cared a great deal about what people thought, and so they shaped their preaching accordingly. Paul cared only about God's opinions. 
He'd been speaking as a man in Christ whose words and motives uh, were open before God. He wasn't trying to hide anything. His aim in all his relations in the Corinthian correspondence was not personal vindication but edification. I'm doing everything I'm doing, Paul says, is not to defend myself because I'm really answering to God. That's who I'm concerned about. One day I'll have to stand at the judgment seat of Christ, and that's that's what counts, not what you think. But I'm concerned. I'm I'm having to defend myself because these false teachers are going to hurt your spiritual growth, your edification. He says, "For I'm not. I'm afraid that when I come, I may not find you as I want you to be, and you may not find me as you want me to be. I fear that there may be discord." Jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, slander, gossip, arrogance, and disorder. I'm afraid that when I come again, my God will humble me before you. And I will be grieved over many who have sinned earlier and have not repented of the impurity, sexual sin, and debauchery in which they've indulged. So I say this present letter may not be completely successful. And so Paul expresses in verses 20 through 21 a couple of fears first he fears that when he comes he will not find the church as he wants it to be he may encounter things like discord jealousy fits of rage he says selfish ambition slander gossip arrogance possibly impurity sexual sin debauchery second paul fears when he comes to corinth they will not find they will not find him there to their liking either you may not find me as you want me to be paul would like to come in gentleness but if his worst fears are realized, he will have to come with a rod. First Corinthians 2 says, and he relate, talks about this later, especially if he finds impurity, sexual sin, and debauchery. Those who have sinned earlier and have not repented. These kinds of sins will cause God to humble Paul. That is, to humiliate Paul. It's going to be humiliating. After all that Paul has done and taught, and he goes to this church and he sees this stuff going on, this is going to be humiliating for the apostle. He's going to be humble at what has taken place. He warns about discipline, chapter 13. This will be my third visit to you. Every matter must be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. I have already given you a warning when I was with you the second time. Now I repeat it while absent. On my return, I will not spare those who sent earlier or any of the others. Paul will not be content to respond to the Corinthian sins with just shame and grief. Now he puts them on notice about his planned third visit. First, Paul quotes a well-known Old Testament passage about everything will be established with two or three witnesses. So his, his witnesses against the Corinthians and this third visit will be a decisive witness to them. Sufficient warning has been given, Paul says. Punishment is coming. I'm not going to let this stuff go forever. Second, Paul reminds them that this is their second warning. I already gave you a warning when I was with you the second time. I repeat it while absent. As a result of the warning, Paul will not spare those who have sinned earlier or any of the others. Those who sinned earlier are more likely the immoral persons of 1221 who didn't repent during Paul's painful visit. The others are probably Corinthians who have been influenced by these false apostles who are arrogantly fostering unrest in the church. These groups remain unrepentant. 
Since you are demanding proof that Christ is speaking through me, verse 3, he is not weak in dealing with you, but is powerful among you. We don't know what form the disciplinary action Paul was threatening would take. Could be public censure, excommunication, supernatural infliction of bodily suffering are all possible. Whatever the case, the Corinthians would finally get the proof that they are demanding. Paul will show them that Christ is speaking through him. So if the Corinthians are looking for a miraculous display, they're going to get it, Paul says. You're going to get it when I come. It'll not be my power, but he says it'll be Christ's power. Christ will be speaking through me. For to be sure, he was crucified in weakness, yet he lives by God's power. Likewise, we are weak in him, yet by God's power we live with him in our dealings with you. The Corinthians should not be fooled by Paul's gentle demeanor as though he operated out of weakness. The same mischaracterization was made of mischaracterization was made of Christ. To be sure, he was crucified in weakness. The crucifixion showed Christ was subject to physical death, but he did not remain in weakness. He lives by God's power. So Christ's weakness, as shown in the crucifixion, was not the result of power, lack of power. He died acting in God's power. Paul's just like. He says, likewise, I'm just like that. Paul and some of his rivals are mistaken about him. They see Paul as weak, frail, and so forth. But Paul says, this power that Christ displayed, I can display that power if you want me to when I come. So he has a challenge to examine themselves here in chapter 13, verses 5 through 10. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do not real, don't, do you not realize that Christ Jesus is in you unless, of course, you fail the test? And I trust that you will discover we have not failed the test. So Paul now calls the Corinthians to examine themselves to see whether they are in the faith, whether they're really saved. They are to test themselves in order to prove the worthiness or genuineness of their faith. The Corinthians have professed faith in Christ, but there are serious doubts about whether their lives match their professions. A genuine faith should display certain things, like the fruit of the Spirit, like love, joy, peace, patience. But what do we have at Corinth? Evidence of quarreling, jealousy, outburst of anger, faction, slander. I say in order to conduct such a test, of course, the Corinthians must possess the capability to recognize Christ's presence among them. Paul sarcastically says, or can you not even recognize that Jesus Christ is in your midst? It may be that things have gotten so bad that they, they can't even tell what real regeneration is like, what real Christianity is like, you know. They don't really see what true salvation really is, maybe. Certainly the fact that they're demanding proof that Christ is speaking through Paul raises doubts about that they understand the true workings of the Spirit. If they do examine themselves and discover that they have not failed the test, then they should be able to discover that Paul is genuine, that we have not failed the test. Only if they doubt their own salvation should they doubt Paul's claim to be a true apostle of Christ Jesus. If they don't fail the test, he shouldn't fail the test. Now we pray to God that you will not do anything wrong you will you will not do you will not do anything wrong not so that people will see that we have stood the test but so that you will do what is right even though we may have failed the test 
Paul's ultimate desire, however, is that the Corinthians will do what is right, even if it turned out that we have failed. Of course, he has no doubts about himself, but he would concede that anything if the Corinthians were to do the right thing. In other words, if, if it proves that you are genuine Christians and I'm a false apostle, I don't care, he says. He says, he says, we pray that you will do the right thing, that you will live a Christian life, that you'll show this fruit of the Spirit. Not so, not so that we'll seem to be standing the test. I'm not concerned about me, Paul says. I'm just concerned about you. I just want you to succeed. I want you to be show evidence of a genuine Christian spirit. His chief desire is not his personal vindication, but their avoidance of the wrong. For we cannot do anything against the truth, but only for the truth. This truth, this verse may be a proverb adapted to the occasion here by Paul, possibly. In the context, probably means Paul's concern was that the truth, especially the truth of the gospel, should prevail at all costs, even if it involved his exposure as a false apostle and a counterfeit Christian. We are glad whenever we are weak, but you are strong. Our prayer is that you may be fully restored. This is why I write these things when I am absent, that when I come, I may not have to be harsh in my use of authority, the authority the Lord gave me for building up, not for tearing you down. So Paul concludes here by restating his goal is that we want you to be strong. He'd be happy if the Corinthians were strong. He wouldn't have occasion to use his apostolic authority uh, harshly. I say in 12, 20 through 21, Paul expresses fears about what he would find at Corinth on his arrival. 13, 10 indicates his hope in this respect. But even here, a veiled warning is registered. While Paul was not invested with this apostolic authority primarily for the negative work of tearing down, if destruction proved to be necessary in order to get something positive, Paul was willing to do it. The authority the Lord gave me for building you up. I didn't give it to me for tearing you down, but I may have to tear you down. Was Paul's final visit to Corinth actually an unpleasant one? Paul's writing this from Macedonia. This is Acts uh, chapter 20. Though direct evidence is lacking, we have at least a couple of indications that it was successful. First, Paul would probably not have planned to visit Rome and to do pioneer evangelism in the West if the church in the city he was writing from was a state of disorder and disloyalty. Second, it's clear from Romans 15, 26 through 27 that the Corinthians heeded Paul's appeal in 2 Corinthians 2, 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 and completed their collection for the saints at Jerusalem. Twice, Paul notes that they were pleased to contribute, which suggests the church and Corinth was in harmony. So what I'm saying is, if you look at Romans chapter 15, we looked at that before, but I won't look at it now. Paul says there that I'm now, he doesn't say it, he says I'm, he's now in Corinth, he's writing to the Roman church, and he says, I've finished my work here. Everything is in good, everything's stable, and now I want to come to Rome. Well, it's not likely he would say that if Corinth was in a turmoil. He's writing from Corinth. And second, he says there, the church at uh, the church in Macedonia and Achaia, the churches have completed their offering. So it looks like this letter was successful and and things turned out well as best we can tell. That I won't go over the final greeting there, those final verses. It's just a greeting, but I've got the notes here. You can take a look at it. So don't forget. 
<laughs> and there's Pastor Ken. Got the door open. <laughs> he wants all you strong men over there. But I was going to keep teaching so you wouldn't have to do it. Close the door. Thank you very much. <laughs>